Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we heard a lot of new music, discussed a comedy of errors, and learned why cowboys are popular in Kenya. All this, plus Size Matters, The Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet? Only on the Lumpen Week in Review for May 25th, 2019. John Daly chatted with the folks behind Mississippi Records, a new revival label based in our neighborhood. Gordon Ashworth and Cyrus Musavi discussed the changing nature of world music, back catalogs, and why cowboys are so popular in Kenya. Radio Free Bridgeport with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. Jamie, before we uh, kick it off here, we've got some new residents to the neighborhood. We do have some new residents to the neighborhood. We're really uh, proud to welcome in Gordon and Cyrus. They're from Mississippi Records. They're transplants from uh, Portland, Oregon. Brand new label. Uh, the label's been around for a while, but you guys took over the label recently, I should say. It's had kind of an uh, interesting experience because uh, it's been around for a while. It's split off into different things, and now you guys have taken it over. But you're also filmmakers, uh, you're creators yourself. So first of all, welcome to Bridgeport. Thanks for coming here, man. Yeah. Thanks for having us. This is great. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell people a little bit of the history of Mississippi Records. I mean, I know people that were in the neighborhood. I think it was a couple months ago, you guys had a little presentation here at the Co-Prosperity Sphere, the history of recorded music according to Mississippi Records. Uh, I know we talked a little bit about that, but people on the radio probably don't know anything about you guys. So tell us a little of the backstory about how you guys got started and what you guys do. Yeah. um, Mississippi Records is a label that was founded in Portland, Oregon 15 years ago. Uh, by our good friends Eric Isaacson, Alex Yusimov, and Warren Hill. Uh, it's also a record shop that exists in Portland, Oregon. It's still there, going strong on North Albina Avenue. Um, but the label's been uh, through, we've released a couple hundred records and like tons and tons of mixtapes and a lot of strange things and movie screenings. And it's kind of, it's kind of got all these different tentacles. There's the record shop, there's the record label. Um, and so Cyrus and I... Um, have been we all kind of made a decision to move parts of the label here to Chicago and leaving parts of it in Portland, Oregon. Uh, so now we're doing the distribution and running various aspects of the label uh, here in Chicago. And now we're based here in Bridgeport, and it's it's been fantastic. We've been here since sometime last year, and at the beginning of the year we did a long tour touring all, all over the U.S. Uh, with Eric Isaacson. Um, Cyrus here was doing film screenings. Um, from his project Raw Music International, um, we were playing records. Uh, Eric was doing his presentation, Cosmic and Earthly History of Recorded Music According to Mississippi Records. And the very last show was here in Chicago. So we loaded up a couple thousand records in a minivan, did a bunch of shows across the country, met with a bunch of different record shops and, and music music uh, appreciators and makers. And um, yeah, the very last show was here. And it was a really great welcome to the city. We've been, we've been here working since then. And you decided to stay. Yeah, we decided to stay. <laughs> I was gonna, I mean, I was going to ask, how did you decide to stay? Uh, well, we were we were moving here anyway. Um, I I had been living in Portland, Oregon for about twelve years, um, and Cyrus and I had been working on different music projects for a number of years, um, and you know, involving some travel and kind of mixing it in with his film stuff. And um, he was also thinking about moving to Chicago, and I was going to come here anyway, uh, and then. As all this was happening and kind of our own different like major life changes, we decided that um, taking over parts of the label and moving here was something we wanted to do. And Chicago just really felt like an appropriate place for the label to be. Yeah, there's so, so much history. There's so much music we admire from here, so many labels that from here that we admire. And we figured since we do music from around the world, we needed to be in a place that's kind of connected and part of a larger scene. 
did you guys know the international anthem guys? Because I mean, obviously, Dave's out in, in Portland before you guys came here. Yeah, like we were familiar with their label and some of their artists, um, and they organized the show for us um, here. You know, ten feet over there at the Co Prosperity Sphere. Yeah, um, we but, dig their music. Yeah, and we we really <laughs> like what they're doing and how they're working with a lot of um, Chicago musicians specifically, and really like helping to build up the Chicago music scene and kind of spread things out from there. And so, yeah, we're definitely friends and fans of what they do. And so. you, you guys started out, it, was it a, how did you guys get started? Was it a reissue label? Because, I mean, when I think of Mississippi Records, I, I originally thought of it as um, a rarities label. You, you guys were kind of like a little like light in the attic, putting out older stuff. Has that shifted? Are you doing more new stuff? Tell, tell people about where the record label's at right now. It's kind of, a, I mean, I've, I've kind of always thought of it as being um, stuff that digs deep, but it's presented in a way that's accessible and more of kind of like a pop music way. Um, so it's it's taking stuff that is has been very hard to find or is kind of obscure or like under the radar or underrepresented or underappreciated, um, but kind of presenting it in a way that in a lot of ways I th- kind of feel is like this this more like mood or emotional driven way that I think people really connect to. I mean, like this is music from all over the world or from, you know, from whatever music scene, but it's kind of curated and presented in a way that I feel like everyone can appreciate from like a real like gut, you know, emotional kind of sense. Um, which I think is pretty is kind of unusual. Like it's not really the normal because you know a lot of reissue labels are just like we like this one record, we're just gonna put it out again, you know. Um, and so I think part of it is like this different approach to curation. Um, but there's also a lot of not a lot. There's like some contemporary artists, you know, like Michael Hurley, um, Dead Moon, and the various projects of Fred and Tootie Cole and Andrew Loomis, um, the Space Lady, um, we brought some music from. Yeah, yeah, I was familiar with you guys from the Dead Moon stuff. That's how right. I yeah, first knew yeah, of you because yeah. I'm a big Dead Moon fan. So yeah. right on. And like yeah. a lot of our projects have been a combination of old and new. The mm-hmm. first things Gordon and I worked on were a series of records from Kenya, where we went to find music by this great Kenyan guitarist named George Mukabe, who had died in the '60s, was murdered in the '60s, and in the process ended up recording a bunch of his contemporaries as old men playing their songs from when they were teenagers. So. We're, I think we're interested in the music, you know, music that's hard to find, but also the reverberations of how it sounds and is felt now in the places where it comes from. Increasingly, like that's something that I at least hope to get into and learn more about. One of the things that Jamie and I have been asking musicians for the last couple of years and asking ourselves is, you know, is there something that's happening in Chicago that's helping artists create or, um, you know, is is there something about this time? I mean... I don't want it to be too leading, Jamie, but we've asked it. We've asked it often because yeah. we see people going to the coasts and then coming back, and um, it, you know we're trying to figure out if, if maybe people aren't migrating uh, east and west so much right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We we migrated in. Yeah, I, I, feel like people, <laughs> I feel like people are coming to Chicago. I mean, there's so much more space, like literal space, and mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a great otherwise. point. Actually, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, you You're need right, space yeah. to be creative. You need to be able to afford your rent, like. I was living in New York for almost 10 years and you can't do anything because you're trying to yeah. trying to make rent. So I think that those very practical aspects make Chicago a good place for art. And then there does seem to be an explosion of extremely talented people and labels and radio stations and, you know, ways to get it out. Like it, it's a whole ecosystem. And I think once it starts hitting, it starts building. But I would I would recommend people move here. <laughs> like I'm like, man. 
once the winter's over. Yeah, the winter actually hasn't been that bad. I mean, you, you get a month or two, but yeah. uh, it's yeah. spring. Spring right now, we're kind of drowning. <laughs> yeah. um, the what, high tide though is coming. <clears throat> the high tide is coming. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Uh, where in New York were you at, by the way? I was living in Brooklyn. I was in Eleventh and A. So okay, transplant myself. Right on. In in New York, I don't know if you remember Robert Christigo at the Village Voice, and it kind of leads to my next question. He was a big advocate of what it, back in the day was called world music. Mm. And I, we don't really talk about the kind of music that IRC is doing or uh, the Numero Group or you guys are doing as world music anymore. It's, it's just music. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to ask you guys about that because it seems like it's a, it's a shift. Uh, when, I, when Chris Scott was writing about world music and, and uh, Z-Rock and all the, the stuff that sounded very exotic and didn't necessarily have a catch on people here in America, um, that phrase almost seemed like it was putting the music in a bucket of an other. Mm-hmm. And you guys, it strikes me, are taking stuff and you're just presenting it. No, 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 this is just rock music. It happens to be from Kenya, you know what I mean? Or mm. this is it. And I wondered if you could talk a little about the shift in perception that what used to be called world music has gone under. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. It's something that we think and talk about a lot. Um, I think that we, I see us as maybe a third generation after that first, you know, world music was basically a, a label for categorizing records in bins when mm-hmm. they didn't have another place to put them. That was, it was a marketing term because where were you going to put all the music from Congo and uh, like Kenya and whatever. So then there was another generation, which I think Mississippi was a part of, which realized like this isn't world music. This is just really good music that happens not to have been made in America or Europe and released it with almost, you know, they weren't really interested in adding all the context that the world music people were like, this is, you know, recorded in this place, blah, blah, blah. They were like, this is really good music, listen to it. There's no liner notes to a Rolling Stones record. Why does there have to be liner notes to a record from wherever else? And then I think we grew up with that, but then we we felt like maybe we did have questions about what this music means and the place it comes from and who listens to it and why it matters or why it was ignored where it's from. So um, I think that like we're, I, I find myself somewhere in the middle um, curious about the background and the context while also just appreciating it as music. So yeah, I think world music doesn't really relate because all music is world music. It's from the world. But, um, but there's questions of like how much context and how much background you include with the music and like how you present it that are still really relevant um, and things that we talk about all the time. You know, we're trying to collaborate with people in the countries where music comes from. Gordon and I both traveled to Tanzania recently to meet the families of an artist uh, called Frank and his sisters who released records in the 50s. So we met his daughter and we met, you know, their family and learned about the family. But we were also really curious about how Frank and his sisters or this style of music is heard in Tanzania today, like what it matter, what it means, how it matters. So, yeah, so we're, we're kind of balancing between recognizing that this is music that's not made in New York, but also appreciating it as music made by human beings, you know, like a combination. Yeah. yeah. It's as all the, just the human experience. Has the internet compressed things, though? I mean, it, it strikes me that when file sharing and started in MySpace, we started to hear stuff that wasn't from New York and, and wasn't necessarily from the coast. And that to me, that was a very positive change. But it does compress the distance uh, between, um, and again, I don't think it's a bad thing, between artists and listener. I mean, you, you can put something on SoundCloud tomorrow in Azerbaijan, and we could conceivably be playing out on the radio tonight. Sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know. Yeah. yeah, I think that's beautiful. Like, it compresses time and space. You can hear something from the 30s 
yeah. or you can hear something from Azerbaijan or Iran, you know. It's true. It's true. Well, you guys have some uh, records. Should we play a, a quick hit, or did you have a quick question, John? No, no. I, I would only add that I, while we were just talking, I remember that the first episode we ever did of this show, um, we started out by talking about uh, the – Lions of the Desert, the Sahara's rock and roll oh, yeah, renaissance. Right. And mm-hmm. it was these guys who were, who were out there um, at with basically the threat of their life um, being jailed, basically throwing solar-powered rock shows in the middle of, the, of West Africa. Um, but, yeah, I, I had kind of forgotten about that. That's, yeah, I mean. That's four years ago. <laughs> it goes both ways. Like, the Internet is, is cool because not only do we hear things from new places, but other people – have access to music from all over the world mm-hmm. as well. Well, certainly when you talk about that context, I mean, it has sure. a little different impact if someone's going to be jailed for it. Yeah. Well, sure. So, uh, Gordon, what do we got up here? We got Six Feet Under first, is that correct? What's going on Yeah, here? the first song, we're going to play a song by uh, the great Bob Freifogel. Uh, he was from Baltimore. The song's from 1964. Okay. And this is from a compilation uh, that was co-released and curated by our good friend Callie Danger uh, and her label, Uh, Lost Train Records, Uh, but this is from a record called Six Feet Under, it's a compilation, and this is the title track by Bob Freifogel. Okay, let's hope I don't screw this up. Here we go, guys. The flowers are wilted, the creature's gone, and I'm left here jilted on the church house lawn. I'm gonna walk around and bury my heart Where it won't be found Six foot under Six foot under Six foot under Down in the cold, cold ground Like words, now my heart is broken. It's off of the birds in the deep, deep hole. I'll vanish safe and sound where you can't get to it. Kick it around, six foot under, six foot under, six foot under, down in the cold, cold ground. Six foot under, down in the cold, cold ground. Chuck Mertz spoke with Jenny O'Dell about reclaiming time, attention, and life from the demands of capitalism. How do smartphones and gadgets impact our lives? Find out on This Is Hell every Sunday at 10 a.m. Multidisciplinary artist and writer Jenny O'Dell is author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jenny. Thanks for having me. In one of Jenny's favorite projects, she, she, she created the Bureau of Suspended Objects, a searchable online archive of 200 objects salvaged from the San Francisco dump, each with photographs and painstaking research into its material corporate and manufacturing histories, which sounds fascinating. Jenny has exhibited her work all over the world. And you can find out more about Jenny by going to Jenny Odell. 
Com. So let's just start with a basic thing that people should know right now, and I think people may have already figured it out. But what is the attention economy? Um, so the attention economy, I think on a literal level, is just the buying and selling of your attention. So, um, you know, there are obvious design elements to the platforms that we use that are intended to keep you on them for as long as possible, not to mention engaging with as much content as possible. Um, and so that's really just, you know, design and kind of marketing practice. But I, I, in the book, I also kind of tie it to a larger idea of the attention economy, um, you know, just kind of more general ideas that if you don't express yourself constantly online, you no longer exist. Um, ideas of the personal brand um, or sort of staying relevant. Um, and so there's kind of like, I think, larger psychological or behavioral things that come out of those specific design elements. So why is it so successful, especially in light of knowing how it invades our privacy and having our right to privacy enshrined within the Constitution? What explains to you why that's, why social media is so successful if we're supposed to be putting so much value in our privacy? Um, I mean, I think some of it, like, you know, to go back to those two levels, I'm some of it is probably just, you know, actual addictiveness. And, you know, there's been a lot of other writing on that. But, um, again, these things are designed to exploit certain, um, you know, uh, aspects of how we do or think about anything. And, and they're very well designed to, to do that. So um, some of it is probably not intentional. Um, and, you know, there's also lots of books that have come out recently about, you know, how to break up with your phone or, um, digital minimalism, like these kinds of, you know, these books wouldn't be written if it were easy for us to kind of walk away from these things. Um, but then I think, again, on that kind of broader level, um, there's a kind of privileging of the of the obvious and the visible um, and this kind of idea that um, by engaging with these things and representing your life on them, that you're producing something. So you, you know, you might not think of that as productive, but you are kind of constantly like making utterances or, or posting things or um, just kind of like shouting into this void. Um, and uh, I think once that kind of becomes entrenched or once we kind of start to take that for granted, um, simply kind of like sitting by and not saying anything or not not rendering oneself visible in those spaces like starts to feel very unnatural. You write, nothing is harder to do than nothing. In a world where our value is determined by our productivity, Many of us find our every last minute captured, optimized, or appropriated as a financial resource by the te technologies we use daily. Is it possible to do nothing and survive? Doesn't capitalism insist we do something for our very survival at all times? Yeah, I think so. Um, and so there's, you know, I, I, I've been saying that my book kind of exists in a in a meantime where uh, we all are subject to economic realities, um, obviously with something like the gig economy, um, or, you know, just even someone who has more than one job. Um, the, the fact that time is money, which is something, you know, philosophy I'm kind of trying to, to work against, like, is just a reality, like time is money for, for a lot of people. So, um, it's kind of like, you know, I, I envision this book as like the, the weeds that are growing in the, in the cracks in the sidewalk, you know, it's like any kind of small, Space of resistance you can find, like find that and kind of try to pry it open, but um, certainly not like envisioning the, you know, a bunch of people being able to do a bunch of nothing all the time. 
You write that we submit our free time to numerical evaluation, interact with algorithmic versions of each other, and build and maintain personal brands. For some, there may be a kind of engineer's satisfaction in the streamlining and networking of our entire lived experience, and yet a certain nervous feeling of being overstimulated and unable to sustain a train of thought lingers. Why does this concentration on our brand undermine our ability to concentrate? Um, I just think that it, you know, the, the, the philosophy of the personal brand exists in that kind of realm of the, the very short loop of attention. So, um, you know, if you spend, if you spend a certain amount of time on Twitter, like you start to feel crazy. I don't think I'm alone in thinking that. Um, and, uh, not to say that it's, it's not useful for some things, but, um, it's this kind of um, very myopic and sort of claustrophobic view, not only of, I think, what's happening, but of the self. So, um, you know, one of the things that I kind of, am, I express worry about in the book is, um, you know, this, I sort of believe that they're in an ecological model of the self where, you know, it's actually somewhat hard to draw a hard line around the boundary of the self. And, um, and to accept that makes you open to being surprised, to learning that you're wrong, to just, you know, simply learning new things, um, you know, becoming a different person. Um, and that that's sort of the opposite of the, of the personal brand and the kind of optimized streamlined self, which is, you know, comes out of this idea that you should, you know, be yourself, capital Y, right. Um, that you should have a, an identifiable and unchanging pattern of preferences. Um, and that ultimately that just makes it easier to advertise to you. So, you know, there is, I think, a reason for this kind of um, encouraging of something like a personal brand and this and this pattern of, of habits and preferences. So do we live in a state where we are always reacting, replying and responding, but never concentrating, contemplating or considering our actions deeply? Like kind of like a, I was thinking like a news outlet that has thought that prioritizes uh, being the first to report on a story over being the most accurate to be poured on a story. Is that the kind of situation we find ourselves in, that first is more important than best? Yeah, I think that's a really great comparison. Um, and, and it also points to this um, idea that, you know, we have to have a take on everything. So not even, you know, a news, news outlet at least has like a sort of reason, at least like a business reason to, to do that. But for even just individuals, I feel like, you know, um, when something happens, a, a lot of people just feel like they are somehow obligated to have some kind of immediate, like, hot take on that, rather than just kind of sitting with that information for a while. Not just sitting with it, but, you know, getting more context, like, trying to get, you know, different sources of information or just waiting a while until that information comes out and then waiting even longer to decide, like, you know, what you think about that or or reflect on it or kind of synthesize it with other things that you know. I mean, I think we all know that things like that take time, and, and that's the sort of time that I feel is being taken away from us. You point out how already in 1877, Robert Louis Stevenson called busyness a symptom of deficient vitality and observed a sort of dead, alive, hackneyed people about who are scarcely conscious of living except in the exercise of some conventional occupation. I find that fascinating that this discussion was happening 142 years ago. You then add, on a collective level, the stakes are higher. We know that we live in complex times that demand complex thoughts and conversations, and those in turn demand the very time and space that is nowhere to be found. Are we too busy to address the greatest challenges of our time, like climate change, racism, misogyny, inequality, and whatever else you'd like to add to that list? Are we too busy 
to make life now and in the future better. Is is that why we're not addressing these major problems? Because we've just made ourselves too busy. Um, I mean, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, I think there are people who are, are successfully doing that work. So I want to acknowledge that. Um, and then I also, I kind of don't want to put the onus too much on, on us for being too busy because I think, um, like one of the things that I'm kind of, or one of the ways I'm trying to distinguish my book from self-help is that, you know, like the, the typical kind of cadence of a self-help book is like, you have a problem and, I, and this book will give you the tools to solve it like once and for all. Um, and if you don't solve that problem, that's, that's your fault. Um, and you, and it's like, you know, uh, you didn't get your money's worth cause it's, cause you did it wrong. Um, and I think my book is very different in that, um, uh, I am, I am addressing it to the individual and I am talking about the kind of like promise and potential of on an individual level, learning to redirect one's attention. But, but I am also kind of situating the problem of the attention economy and of this kind of um, busyness um, as not only part of this cult of productivity that's kind of, I think, been, uh, we've all been steeped in, um, but also, again, to come back to the kind of like economic reality, um, people have, uh, people are, I think a lot of people are just trying to make it work. Now we could do a show about the squirrels of Bridgeport. I think what we need to focus on... Oh, are you okay? Oh, my God. Kyle, sort through your mail. It's all junk. Just throw it out. No, you pick it up. It can't be strewn all over the entrance. It's a hazard. Last thing we need is another visit from the fire marshal. Last thing I need is less time to do all the crap around here. I gotta do. You have no idea how much stuff... What the flip is their problem? Uh, John's identity got stolen a while back. Say what? Ooh, that's it. That's the show we're going to do about. English, please. On this episode, we're going to do an investigative report on identity theft. Every year, exactly 323 Americans gets their identities took. Size matters investigates. Hang on, did you fact check that? That's the fact that I said the thing. If that figure is exact, then the entire country is a nation of identity thieves. A plausible dystopia indeed. Science Matters investigates. I met up with the host of Radio Free Bridgeport, John Daly, to expose the truth about identity theft. All these cool beers, this one's a Rhode Island Dirty mm. IPA. I wanted to try Hello, one. good sirs. We're recording an episode of Size Matters. I know. I can see that. What's the episode about? Identity theft and the thieves who steal them. I would like to keep that a private matter and The not... jig is up. How long you been gallivanting around as other people? That, that is not what Who's I... staring in the meat suit? The what? This is good stuff. Keep going. Don't nag him on. Inspl- explain yourself, imposter. Speak! Someone used my personal information to go on a shopping spree. I think he's lying. That sounds rehearsed Yeah, it me. does. Jess, what the... Ow. Hey, not cool. <laughs> then tell me who you is. My identity got stolen. I wasn't taken over by the body snatchers or the talented Mr. Ripley. Or the thing. The what? what? The 1982 John Carpenter classic or the 1930s classic. So wait, someone stole your credit card. Credit cards, PIN, social security uh, number, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's kind of boring. I can't do a whole show on that. Don't look at me. I think your concept of identity theft is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I totally see that now. That's good producing, Jess. Yeah, I'm great. Kyle, just be glad you're incapable of having your identity stolen. How so? No address, no records. What about all the mail? That's right. What? You are on the grid. It's all junk. Credit card offers and social security, what have you. Hang on. 
credit card offers? Yeah. That means you have credit. Wait a sec. How many credit cards do you have? I ain't never had one. I'm checking here on the net to see if you have anything open in your name. Oh, yeah. Just my suitcase. Call it down, down, Kyle. I use my suitcase. I'm using your suitcase because it's what I got to do. Kyle, you're freaking okay. out. You need okay. to relax. I've never okay. seen him okay. so distraught. John, how long has this guy been using uh, Kyle's info? About 30 years. Whoa. <laughs> Just hold on. Let's see where in Scottsdale, Arizona, this guy lives. Wow. That is a nice piece of property. What? Property? Gets worse. You paid for med school. What? You gotta be Kyle, kidding me. don't worry. We're going to kill this middle thing. Yeah, I don't know about that, but we're going to confront them. I got to go find him. Someone buy me a plane ticket. I made my way to Scottsdale, Arizona, where I met up with a man going by the name of Kyle Seismankowski. We agreed to meet up in an industrial park outside of... Oh, crud. The battery on the portable recorder is about to die. I'll talk fast. We agreed to meet up... Alive. Boy, what a trip. What a great time I had. Did you end up using the lie? The what? Uh, so is that guy in prison or what? Actually, this jerk turned out to be one of the coolest people I've ever met in my whole life. Say what? Yeah, he's got a great taste in clothes, cars, and his house is so big, I learned a new word to describe it. Palatial. This is the man who stole your information? Not at all. Turns out his name is also Kyle Seismankowski, and he was also born on September 29th, 1946 in Chicago. Well, that's because he ripped you off. No, it turns out it's just a coincidence. Kyle, for years he's been using your credit to establish himself in society while you've been stuck squatting and mooching. Not entirely. No, actually completely. Now, it just so happens that we have identical social security numbers. The only difference is he actually has a social security card and a birth certificate. You don't? Nope, my dad just wrote all my information down on an index card and told me not to lose it. I gotta go and pack. Excuse me, guys. Wait. I'm confused. If Kyle Seismankowski of Scottsdale, Arizona has proof of who he is, then who is our Kyle Seismankowski? Size Matters Investigates? This week on The Trump Diaries, a judge rules against Trump's stonewall tactics. Trump tries to prevent people testifying before Congress. A Republican calls for Trump's impeachment. Trump and Jared Kushner's transactions are flagged for money laundering with Russia. And Trump has ideas for his beautiful wall. Just ask him. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 848, May 17th. Michael Flynn told Robert Mueller that people tied to Trump and a person connected to Congress tried to obstruct the Russian investigation. Flynn said Trump's associates could have affected his, quote, willingness to cooperate. Flynn provided Mueller's office with a voicemail of one instance. In a related matter, a judge also ordered public release of the transcript of Flynn's 2016 call with the Russian ambassador. The judge also ordered release of a voicemail Trump left Flynn before Flynn opted to cooperate with federal investigators. The United States military is building six tent cities near the border for migrants. The camps are not likely to be pitched on military bases, and ICE will be responsible for migrant detention and custodial support. Trump is seeking $1.17 billion from Congress to fund the tent cities. Trump has told the Department of Homeland Security he wants his border barrier to be painted black and adorned with spikes. Trump's frequently changing design requests have frustrated Homeland Security officials and military engineers. His other ideas include fewer gates and resistance to climbing. 
Trump pulled back from European and Japanese automobile tariffs and lifted tariffs on North American metal imports. That decision decreases the likelihood of a global trade war. And Trump accused the FBI of engaging in treason, claiming it had spied on his campaign. He then called for a long confinement of those responsible. Quote, my campaign for president was conclusively spied on. Nothing like this has ever happened in American politics. A really bad situation. Treason means long jail sentences, and this was treason. The FBI denies, in fact, that Trump's campaign was spied on. It was placed under surveillance due to his pervasive contacts with Russian nationals. Date 149, May 18th. Trump filed expedited requests for the necessary paperwork to issue pardons just after Memorial Day for several U.S. service members who have been accused or convicted of serious war crimes, including the mass murder of civilians. Pardons reportedly under consideration involving Navy SEAL Officer Edward Gallagher, who's soon to go on trial for allegedly killing multiple unarmed Iraqi civilians, and a Blackwater gunman, Nicholas Slatton, who's been found guilty of murdering 10 women, two men, and two children, also in Iraq. Report says the host of Fox & Friends has been pushing Trump to issue the pardons. Google suspended all business with Huawei that requires the transfer of hardware, software, and technical services. Trump added the Chinese technology giant to a trade blacklist, with restrictions making it extremely difficult for the company to do business. Short-term, the move is likely to contain Huawei. Long-term, it risks creating a world with a two-tier information system, leaving one-fifth of the planet out. Huawei is widely thought to be controlled by the Chinese government. Trump announced the first part of his Middle East peace proposal, which officials are calling an economic workshop. The plan is to secure financial commitments from wealthy Persian Gulf states, as well as donors in Europe and Asia, to introduce the Palestinians and their allies to make political concessions. In what amounts to a bribe, the proposal also calls for Palestine to drop the idea of a two-state solution. Palestinian officials call the idea a non-starter and called any negotiations collaborationist. Trump's pick for ICE director claimed he can tell which migrant children will become gang members by looking into their eyes. Mark Morgan told Tucker Carlson of Fox News, quote, I've looked at them and I've looked at their eyes, Tucker, and I've said, that is a soon-to-be MS-13 gang member. It's unequivocal. In a related story, a 16-year-old migrant from Guatemala died in ICE custody. He is the fourth person to die in ICE custody. Day 815, May 19th. Representative Justin Amash, the Republican of Michigan, became the first member of his party serving in Congress to publicly say Trump's conduct had reached the threshold of impeachment. Amash does not yet represent a groundswell among the Republican Party, but Democrats appear to be lining up behind Nancy Pelosi as impeachment grows ever more likely. Trump responded by calling Amash a loser on Twitter. Transactions made by Trump and Jared Kushner at Deutsche Bank raised fears of money laundering according to the bank's own internal police unit. Compliance officers believe the transactions made in 2016 and 27, when both men were in office, should have been reported to the Treasury Department. The transactions involved transfers between Trump and Russian nationals. Meanwhile, Trump claimed Joe Biden has financial ties to China, calling for an investigation. Quote, 100%, it's a disgrace. Trump said in an interview with Fox News when asked if the Biden family's alleged financial ties with China should be investigated. And then he says China is not a competitor of ours. China is a massive competitor of ours. They want to take over the world. Trump's claims were made by the conservative author Peter Schweitzer, who claims that Mr. Biden's youngest son, Hunter, made millions from the Chinese government at a time when his father was negotiating with Chinese officials over government issues. Schweitzer, who is heavily bankrolled by the Mercer family, a hard-right mega-donor, is the author of Clinton Cash. He is also not considered credible. Trump in a tweet said, quote, if Iran wants to fight, that will be the official end of Iran. Never threaten the United States again. 
It is unclear what prompted this, but it came soon after a rocket landed near the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. And Trump reported making at least $434 million in 2018, according to his annual financial disclosure form. Meanwhile, a meta-analysis revealed that Trump's tariffs are equivalent to one of the largest tax increases in decades. The tariffs, which were actually a tax on consumption, increased coffers by $72 billion. That would be the biggest tax increase since 1993. Date 151, May 20th. A federal district court judge has ruled that Trump's accounting firm must turn over his financial records to Congress. In the ruling, the judge decimated the argument that lawmakers had no legitimate power to subpoena the files. Trump's legal team is virtually certain to appeal rather than permit the firm Mazars USA to comply with that subpoena. The ruling by the judge, Ahmet Mehta, of the United States District Court for the District of Columbia was an early judicial test of the president's vow to systematically stonewall all subpoenas by Democrats, stymieing their ability to perform oversight of Trump and the executive branch after they won control of the chamber in the last elections. But federal prosecutors in New York are now coming through tens of thousands of documents related to Trump's inauguration. The feds suspect portions of the $107 million in donations, which was an unprecedented amount, was misspent, was used to benefit individuals, or came from foreign donors in violation of campaign finance laws. Trump said the United States conducted a cyber attack against a Russian entity during last year's midterm elections. Trump was asked about a report in the Washington Post that he personally approved a cyber attack against Russia, during which the military blocked access to a Russian troll farm known as the Internet Research Agency. Quote, I would rather not say that, but if you can believe the whole thing happened and it happened during my administration. Trump then added, they don't like me to talk. Intelligence says, please don't talk intelligence. You know, sometimes intelligence is good and sometimes you look at Comey and you look at Brennan and you look at Clapper and I'm supposed to believe that intelligence? I never believe that intelligence. Trump told his former White House counsel Don McGahn to defy a congressional subpoena and skip a hearing scheduled for Tuesday. The House Judiciary Committee subpoena began to appear. The White House presented McGahn and that committee with a 15-page legal opinion from the Justice Department stating that Congress may not constitutionally compel the president's senior advisors to testify about their official duties. McGahn has said he will skip the meeting. McGahn is likely to be held in contempt of court. However, word began to appear he could damage not only his own career in Republican politics, but also put his law firm, Jones Day, at risk. Jones Day is closely tied to the Republican Party. And the EPA is planning to adopt a new method for projecting the future health risks of air pollution. The change would immediately lower an estimate from last year by the Trump administration that said as many as 1,400 additional people would die each year from their proposed new rule on emissions from coal plants. Trump is trying to replace Obama's signature climate change measure, the Clean Power Plan. Experts say the new EPA rule is not only inaccurate, it has not been peer-reviewed and is not scientifically sound. 852, May 21st. McGahn, as expected, to find a House subpoena. The move significantly ratcheted up tension on Capitol Hill as Democrats began openly calling for impeachment proceedings. House panel chair Jerry Nadler of New York warned both McGahn and Trump he would now hold people in contempt, adding that Trump's attempt to stonewall constitutes a crime. A confidential IRS legal memo says tax returns must be given to Congress unless Trump asserts executive privilege which is unclear if he actually can do so. According to the memo, the disclosure of tax returns to the House committee is, quote, mandatory, requiring the secretary to disclose returns and return information requested by the tax writing chairs. This directly contradicts the Trump administration's justification for denying the request. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin denied the returns by arguing there is no legislative purpose for demanding them. 
The memo says the law does not allow the secretary to exercise discretion in disclosing information, provided these statutory conditions are met. Congress has the right to request the tax returns under a 1924 law. Ex-bagman Michael Cohen told Congress that Trump's lawyer Jay Sekulow told him to lie about the Trump Tower Moscow deal. Cohen claimed that Sekulow, Trump's personal attorney, asked him to say the Moscow negotiations ended in January 2016, six months before they actually concluded. Cohen also said Sekulow suggested he might be pardoned if he helped, quote, shut down the Russia investigation. And ex-voting suppression czar Chris Kobach sent a list of 10 demands to Trump for him to be the next immigration czar. Among Kobach's demands were 24 access to a government jet to allow him to be on the border at a moment's notice, an office in the White Wing, guaranteed weekends off, and an assurance he would be appointed as Homeland Security Secretary by November. The list took West Wing residents aback. Trump is actually now expected to sec Ken Cuccinelli to the job. Cuccinelli is another immigration hardliner. And Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson tussled with Congress in a hearing, appearing not to understand basic real estate terms. At one point, Carson asked if a questioner was asking about an Oreo cookie. She was, in fact, asking about REO homes, which are homes acquired by the Housing and Urban Development Department after a foreclosure on a federal housing agency insured mortgage. Day 153, May 22nd. The Justice Department suddenly relented and said it would honor a subpoena for intelligence materials related to the Mueller investigation. The subpoena is broad, encompassing the full Mueller report, its underlying evidence, and the intelligence-related materials that investigation produced. Justice now could begin handing over counterintelligence and foreign intelligence-related documents as soon as this week. Trump is considering blacklisting a Chinese video surveillance giant. The move would effectively prevent the company Hikvision from buying American technology. It would also mark the first time Trump has punished a Chinese company for its role in the surveillance and mass detentions of an Uyghur minority in that country. Hikvision is the largest video surveillance company in the world. China has used their technology to construct what has been described as a virtual police state to contain the mostly Muslim ethnic minority. In related news, Xi Jinping called for the Chinese people to begin a modern long march. The reference to a Maoist-era suffering has been accompanied in state media by rhetoric comparing the trade war with America to the Korean War. Of course, that was when Chinese troops were in direct combat with American forces. Only 35% of voters approve of Trump's policies, per a new Quinnipiac poll. Joe Biden continues to dominate polling among likely Democratic voters. These are the Trump Diaries. Hitting Left spoke with Rachel DeWoskin about her new book and remarkable background. An unlikely soap opera star in mainland China, DeWoskin discusses her Comedy of Errors memoir about her life and dishes on her new book, Out Now from Viking. Hitting Left airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Our in-studio guest today is Rachel DeWoskin, professor of practice in the arts a committee on creative writing. She's the author at the University of Chicago, I might add. She's the author of a new historical novel, Someday We Will Fly. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you for having me. As soon as China opened, we began going every summer, often to excavate ancient Chinese instruments from rural Chinese villages. 
Musical instruments? Musical and medical instruments. I was talking about musical instruments, bronze bell sets in, in, in particular. But my dad has books about medical instruments as well. He has a book called Doctors and Diviners about medical and musical instruments in early China. And he taught very esoteric things at Michigan, like methods of research in classical Chinese. My dad's a huge fiend, very eccentric and brilliant and funny person. And he's now a, a powerful <laughs> consultant, but extremely professorial in his aspect. And, and uh, you learned how to speak, uh, how, how many dialects? Uh? I speak good Mandarin, but I actually only learned a little bit as a kid. I learned the songs and the kind of nursery rhymes, and I learned the cadence of the language, but I didn't study it formally until I was at Columbia in my late teens and early now, this 20s. Now, this was all before, uh, or at least the time you're talking about when you first went there was before uh, relations between the U.S. and China were normalized, right? They had... You could you could get in, but there wasn't formal diplomatic relations between the two countries, or were you? Or is that did that come out? Did you come after? I that? came after that. So in yeah. fact, for some of the years that we traveled back and forth, my dad was helping the then Governor Blanchard, the governor of Michigan, run a sister state relationship between ah. uh, Michigan and Sichuan province. And were you mainly in Beijing, or did you? No, we traveled all, all over, over rural China. Yeah. I slept in you know the beds of revolutionary heroes and ate banquets with local government officials and academics and so on. So China was always part of my, the landscape of my family and my imagination. And my earliest ideas about America, I got from China. My favorite Chinese expression is jing di zhi wa. This is the frog in the bottom of the well who looks up and thinks that she can see the entire expanse of heaven, but of course can actually only see a small circle. And I think it says something important about inside perspective and the problem of not not leaving your well, not getting outside your own POV. And partly, I, I like to do that by way of fiction, but I also think China offered me a way to do that when I was very, very young. But you were there during a period, were you, were you old enough to be aware of the political changes that were going on? Or is that something that kind of went on uh, outside your, uh, I think I your was, well, the, the opening of your well? I think I was aware, actually. I think little kids actually pay close attention to those sorts of things. And politics in China feel... They, they're granular. They avalanche down in a different way. I think sometimes politics here when I was growing up felt like more of an abstraction, whereas there they felt very concrete. And certainly in my 20s when I lived in Beijing, I mean, one example that's, that seems iconic to me is the moment when we bombed the Belgrade embassy, the Chinese embassy. NATO bombed the, the embassy in Belgrade. And within one day, friendships were shattered. People were breaking up. Bands evaporated. Couldn't play music together anymore. It's this kind of instantaneous politics are felt instantaneously there in the marrow of the individual citizens in a way that they, for me, were not here as a kid growing up. And I don't mean to jump ahead too far, but do you feel that that, I mean, you're, you obviously travel there now. What is that still the, is that still the case? Is that that kind of... At least when you read in the in the press and in the news about China today, that it doesn't there's reports that people don't are not as engaged in politics that they might have been in the 70s or 80s. Do you find that to be true? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it may be, it may feel slightly less acute. I think in a way, throughout the 90s when I was living there full time, there was a sort of unspoken agreement between the government and the people, a, an idea of. We, we do politics the old way, and you can live your lifestyles however you want. Mm -hmm. And I think that that permeated society to a certain extent. But I think certainly among intellectuals and, and artists, uh, there's a very close attention being paid to what's happening politically and, and a, lot of, a lot of concern. Now, uh, 
as there is here. I always <laughs> like to add, I feel like it's unsavory in some way uh, to talk about China for me without looking in the mirror all the time and asking, yeah. can't the same same criticisms be suggested of the West? That's a good point. And um, speaking of unsavory, after, uh, after college, you went uh, back to work in uh, Beijing, and you ended up uh, being a, a star of a Chinese soap opera. T- tell us about how well, that, that happened. I would argue that was very savory. <laughs> 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 so, you know, that happened the way these things do. I was 21, and the only Western. Yo, you were savory, maybe, but the role a, you a played wasn't miles. too savory. Well, it's funny. I mean, I was at a party one night, and some guy said to me, you know, you're white basically do you want to be in my friend's soap opera and I said absolutely not I had a job and I'm not an actor and I I never aspired or had any talent um for that to that but I I had a corporate job which made me want to gnaw my leg off to escape my carpeted cubicle so I eventually agreed to go and see the Beijing film and tv studio and it was stunning Endless sets receding into the distance with people in costumes jumping off of balconies and guys with Manchu ponytails and silk robes of all sorts and directors shouting into megaphones. And so I signed up for it without knowing exactly what it was. And the, and the name of this uh, The soap name opera? of the soap opera was Foreign Babes in Beijing. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Which became the title of your book. I called my memoir that. I, I spent some years after my life in China grappling with the moral nuance of my participation <laughs> in the show, which actually turns out not to have been as dire as it might have been. This is not because my moral compass was particularly well set. But it, it turned out the show was really, in its way, a kind of... There were multiple versions of the show. It was a kind of subtle propaganda that didn't exactly convey the message that you might think. In other words, it looked to the censors, or the censors could say that it was a show warning the masses about the possible toxicity of Western imports. But in fact, it was just marketable, delicious television about people falling in love and betraying each other and sleeping together and having children. And the final sequence is my character, who was the Western vixen flying <laughs> off to America in a scene of beautiful exodus with lots of intercut pigeons and now other birds. The well, there was nothing else to watch on TV. I mean, it seems oh, glo- they have one, what, like one channel. Gloaty <laughs> for me to say, but I mean, in in those days, it was really competing with state-run fare. Yeah, yeah. So you know, government officials shaking hands in front of banners. But and you that had sort like what, what, it was like six hundred million or something. Is I that read that? reports that six hundred million people watched it. <laughs> those are our ratings too, by the way. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh huh. Uh, that's good. I'm reliving the glory days here on the radio. With but, you. but 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 uh, uh, from what I understand, people on the on the street used to come up to you and. Mix you up with the character that you, I mean, consider you to be the vixen, uh, uh, Jesse. Yeah. It's a transliteration of Jesse. Her name was Jessie. And I would say people came up to me on the street because they felt we knew each other because right. I paraded around their living rooms in my long fur coat. And occasionally and they liked you, they, they, right? But most of the attention was quite affectionate. And in fact, I think Chinese consumers of, of television and literature are are sophisticated in terms of of what the moral messages are in any given drama and what the distinction might be between what something proposes and what it actually is. I mean, they're sophisticated consumers of moral drama, right? They've been reading Chinese press their whole lives. And I don't think that people mistook foreign babes in Beijing for a documentary. I mean, <laughs> grandmas would ask me, was it real love with uh, Tianming, my my, cohort, my co-star, my, my love interest on the show? And I would sadly and regretfully explain to them that it was not. Um, and sometimes teenage girls bought whatever I was buying. 
usually esoteric electronic components or fish paste condiment. I was always buying condiments, lipstick. There was not actually there wasn't a very good cosmetic makeup there in those days, which is remarkable because now you you can buy any possible thing on any street corner in Beijing. The private instigators brought their glam punk sound to a John Daly session. This is Black High Tops from their forthcoming LP, produced by Ari Shellist. What tipped you off to something was less than normal about the education system? What what was your first hint? Sure. Um, so I have at least one child who um, is between the first and second grade, and he, he don't narrow down the age too much. Right. Right. He s- started out school very enthusiastic very chipper um and i noticed as time went on um his his demeanor sort of changed um particularly it seemed in relation to his schoolwork so i took more of a vested interest in in helping him do his homework and um it was very difficult for me to adjust to new um new curriculum being implemented which um, I had kind of predicted. I, I, I knew that new um, new standards were being rolled out to ha- to, to help kids better. Um, but what I noticed in a particular homework assignment of his was that the th- there were series of numbers that he was being instructed to memorize, um, and I couldn't um, 
I couldn't pinpoint any particular function that they served. And what I realized was that these numbers were social security numbers. Um, in, so, in just printed out in large sheets for the yes, children in their in, workbooks? Yes, large sheets. They would have to um, uh, write them and rewrite them. And um, I, 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 at, I glanced at it and I thought that these numbers had some particular particular meaning. Um, but then I realized that's what they were, and I looked them up, and all, all of these all of these numbers be- belong to people that are are deceased. Are we cool yet? 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 The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.